Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord, and when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost, also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves, and it tasted like something made with olive oil. When the Jews settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms, as a nurse carries an infant, to the land you promised on earth to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me seventy of Israel's elders, who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you, so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month, until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it, because you have rejected the Lord, who is among you, and have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, Here I am among six hundred thousand men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. Cool. On page 1780. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and got up to indulge in revelry. 
we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by the snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to, to them as an examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Thanks for reading Darcy. Morning, everybody. Uh, we are continuing the series in the book of Numbers. I hope you're enjoying it so far. Uh, we've called it uh, Walking with God in the Wilderness as we uh, follow the Israelites in their journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land of Canaan through the wilderness. And um, we've said before that their journey uh, is an example for us as we journey from our rescue and being formed as God's people through this life, through all the challenges and uncertainties that we face to the promised land of the new creation. Last two weeks we've covered the first ten chapters, uh, which are really travel preparations. And we've drawn out five essential truths about God that we need to know if we're going to travel well. Uh, today we get into some action. They actually set out, well they actually set out in the middle of chapter 10, uh, but we're going to slow down and uh, take some time this morning to look at chapter 11. Let me uh, pray for us as we begin. Our Father, we uh, do believe that these things happened to them as examples for us, and so we pray that by your Spirit you'd enable us to, to learn the lessons that you want us to learn from the example of your people uh, all those years ago. Please uh, still our hearts and clear our minds that we might hear your voice, that we might be encouraged in the gospel this morning to follow Jesus. Amen. Have you heard of the seven deadly sins? Here they are. I, I don't know if you could name them. I'm not sure I could either. Pride and sloth and envy and gluttony and lust and can't remember the others. But um, they're not a biblical list as such. You don't find these seven listed anywhere. But um, over time, they've become a kind of list of uh, deadly sins. But I think there's one missing. And it's the sin that we're considering particularly this morning. And I wonder if you would have even considered this a sin at all, the deadly sin of grumbling. Uh, we don't tend to think of it as a sin, really, do we? We see it as our right to complain and grumble about things, whether it's the, the weather, that's particularly a British thing to do, or the, uh, the government, or uh, our boss, or colleagues, or our children, or the traffic, or any other number of things. Uh, but grumbling, according to this reading, and what we had read from uh, 1 Corinthians 10, is very serious indeed. Grumbling against God, that is. It is just as deadly as lust and pride and gluttony and sloth. And so it's important that we realize the danger of grumbling, and that's our first point, the danger of grumbling. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 11 comes as a bit of a shock. Uh, as I said, in the second half of chapter 10, 
Uh, the people set out from Mount Sinai where they've been camping for over a year. They set out, they're on their way, and all looks good. Uh, they're doing everything as God commanded. And so verse 1 of chapter 11 is a bit out of the blue. Nothing's prepared us for it. Well, apart from the fact that the people did this back in Exodus 16 when they were first rescued from Egypt and came into the wilderness. In fact, those chapters in Exodus uh, 16 to eight, oh, Exodus 13 to 18 are really mirrored here in the book of Numbers. But the behavior of God's people is worse and God's response is more severe. There's a sense in which the people in Numbers should have known better. They've had more revealed to them and so in a way they're more responsible. Well, how much more for us? But 1 to 3 of chapter 11 really provide a kind of template for all the episodes that follow. Let me read again. 11 verse 1. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah, which means burning or scorched, because fire from the Lord had burned among them. So we find this template that the people grumble, God responds in righteous anger and judgments. Uh, there are no casualties here. There's, there's fire, the camp is burned a bit, but no one dies. But it's a serious warning, isn't it? Uh, the people cry out to Moses, Moses intercedes on their behalf, God relents, and then we're given the name of the place. It seems they named these places to try and remember what had happened so that they learned the lesson. So the place is called Tabra, burning. But they don't learn the lesson, and so they go round the cycle again and again. In fact, the next ten chapters, the first ten chapters are all about travel preparations, then we're off, and the next ten chapters are really not much more than repeated complaints and failures to trust God. Now, of course, as Christians, we are not immune to grumbling and complaining. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things happened in Numbers to the people back then as examples, written down as warnings for us. And I wonder if you spotted in that reading in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul warns us particularly about four things. Idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, testing Christ, and fourthly, grumbling. He says, do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We need to be careful, and I think maybe particularly careful about this sin of grumbling because it's so subtle and insidious. This first episode, verses 1 to 3, should have been enough to teach the people patience and contentment to warn them against grumbling, but sadly it didn't end there. The next episode from verse 4 is, is longer and contains more detail and enables us, I think, to, to see uh, some of the key features of grumbling, to make a bit of a diagnosis of what grumbling is, where it comes from, how it operates. And at its heart, we see that grumbling is a denial of God's goodness. And that's our next point.
the denial of God's goodness. Uh, we've seen already that the people are complaining about their hardships. They go on in verse 4 to uh, complain about the food that they've got. Nothing but manna. Why don't we have any meat to eat? And so part of grumbling is feeling sorry for yourself. Self-pity. And we need to realize that self-pity is only ever a thought away. Uh, some of you will know Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, we heard about Jim Elliot last night, one of Henry's heroes. Elizabeth Elliot was Jim's wife. Um, Jim Elliot was killed by Amazonian tribesmen, people he was trying to reach uh, with the gospel in South America. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, one of her standard phrases is this, refuse self-pity, which is particularly striking when you realize that she actually went on to bury three husbands and went back to the very same tribe that had killed her husband with an infant child in tow. Refuse self-pity, she said. Refuse it absolutely. It is a deadly thing with power to destroy you. See, the events that we face each day don't come with a set of instructions on how to respond, how to deal with them. Stuff just kind of comes along and happens to us, and we need to respond in the moment. We need to interpret what's going on and deal with it. The challenge for us as we uh, try and process the events of our life in light of the gospel, uh, sorry, that the challenge that we face is to process the events that we face in the light of the gospel. Because it's only the gospel that will enable us to hold self-pity at bay. Because we will get sick, or those close to us will. And people will let us down. And things go, won't go smoothly, and we'll feel overwhelmed. We can't avoid any of that, but we can avoid feeling sorry for ourselves. So how do we avoid it? Well, John Piper helpfully points out that self-pity is actually rooted in pride. Self-pity, feeling sorry for yourself, is actually rooted in pride. It's the flip side of boasting. So Piper says in... Uh, his book, I can't remember which one. Um, boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says, I deserve admiration because I've achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I've suffered so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. I wonder if that rings true for you. Boasting is pretty easy to spot, isn't it? Whereas self-pity is more subtle. And Piper goes on to say, self-pity is a sin that so often leads to other sins. As we seek to comfort ourselves in feeling sorry for ourselves, we look for comfort in self-indulgent ways. So how do we kill it off? How do we cut the root of self-pity from our hearts? Well, the answer is gratitude. It's hard to feel sorry for yourself when you're consciously remembering all that God has done for you in Christ and all that he is doing for you in Christ and all that he will do for you in Christ. Self-pity is suffocated by gratitude. It's not complicated, 
But it's pretty hard to maintain, isn't it? If we don't consciously remember God's goodness and grace to us, if we don't practice gratitude, we'll probably fall into the second danger of, uh, no, not there yet, haven't got it on the screen, feeding a false narrative. So if grumbling comes from feeling sorry for ourselves, it also is, is uh, fed as we believe a false narrative about what's going on. So we're told in verse 4, that the rabble with them began to crave other food. This rabble is probably uh, non-Israelites who've uh, have kind of been picked up in the exit from Exodus and accompanying uh, God's people, and they are uh, craving other foods. And the Israelites are listening to them, and we're told started wailing. And saying, if only we had meat to eat. You see something here of how grumbling is infectious, how it spreads, how it doesn't just affect me, but so often breeds a, a culture of grumbling and complaint in the communities around me. Their complaint here is about food. Let me uh, read again. If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Uh, God had provided manna for his people, if you remember, this miraculous provision every Every day they'd wake up and there was food on the ground that God had rained down from the sky. But it wasn't enough for these folks. They wanted meat. They remember having free fish and salad and tasty, juicy meals. Uh, not just manna, this boring manna. And again, I think we, we see here the essence of grumbling makes us forget things. It uh, makes us believe a false narrative about what's going on. You see, they seem to have forgotten. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable. Maybe they did have access to cucumbers, but free fish and melons and like all this amazing food seems unlikely for oppressed slaves. And they seem to have forgotten that they were also required to make bricks from straw and that they were beaten as slaves and that their baby boys had been thrown into the Nile River to die. They've forgotten the past. They've uh, believed a false narrative and started thinking it was much better than it actually was. And they're feeling badly about the present, which is really much better than they're saying. And the narrator doesn't want us to, to fall for this. And so he tells us in verse 7, uh, it gives us a little description of the manna. Verse 7, he tells us, the manna was like coriander seeds. It looked like resin. That The word there is actually bedellium, which is a word that comes up in Genesis 2, uh, a precious jewel uh, listed alongside gold. So this stuff is pretty special food, precious. The people went around gathering it, and it could be cooked and prepared in all sorts of ways. They ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it into loaves, and it tasted well, it tasted a bit like uh, luxurious pastry made with the finest oil. This was special food, no ordinary stuff. 
In Psalm 78, we're told that God rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. So this wasn't just any ordinary food. It wasn't even coal's finest. This was heavenly food. And it was all given for free. Just falls from the sky. But it wasn't steak. And so it's not good enough. They've misremembered the past and they've gone blind to the present. They've also forgotten the future, the promise that God had given them to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey. And that land, it's really just a few days' journey away. If they would just get on and follow the Lord's, he would bring them to a land of bountiful provision. That the manna was never meant to be forever. Uh, it was probably a bit like uh, you know, the magical bread that the elves give to Frodo and Sam, uh, which didn't taste great, but it was wonderfully sustaining and perfect for a journey. Well, so this manna was meant to be food for the journey, just to keep them going on the short trip to Canaan. If they would just get up and follow God, very soon they'd be in a land of milk and honey. But what do they do? Verse 10, we're told every family stood at the entrance of their tents, wailing, weeping and crying out. They're like children having a tantrum. It's just manna. We can't stand it. Give us meat. Verse 10 tells us the Lord became exceedingly angry and Moses too was troubled. No wonder God was angry. They'd forgotten everything he'd done for them. They were ungrateful for what he was giving them, and they'd stop thinking about where he was taking them. They were doubting his goodness, just as we do every time we're not sure he's really going to take care of us. Or when we pine after the past, maybe envying our unbelieving friends, their Sunday lions and lavish lifestyles, and we think, oh, it was better when I wasn't a Christian. They'd forgotten the future, just as we do when we start to think that this life is all there is. And as the grumbling spread from the rabble to the congregation, so now we find it spreads to Moses himself. Verse 11, Moses asked the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servants? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? He goes on, where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The burden's too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. I'd rather die. He's like a child himself, isn't he? Classic whinging. It's all about him. He's as bad as the people. And in fact, what we're told in verse 1, that people complain about their hardships is the same word used in verse 11 as Moses complains about the trouble, the hardship that God has brought on his servants. As a parent, I can relate to this. So often I ca catch myself complaining about my children's complaints. I have to say, I have found this whole section personally convicting. I'm so prone to grumbling rather than gratitude. And so what can we do if, like me, we find ourselves focusing on the troubles that we face 
feeding a false narrative, seeing the glasses only ever half empty at best. Well, in Martin Lloyd-Jones's book, Spiritual Depression, he says this. I'm going to read quite a long quote. It's a great old book, probably a bit antiquated language and heavy, and I have to say I haven't read it all myself, but chapter one is gold. <laughs> he says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You haven't originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, and so on. Somebody's talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. He goes on to say, this is what you need to do. You must say to yourself, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be upset? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people, defy the devil and the whole world, and say with the psalmist, I shall yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. So that's a bit of a diagnosis of grumbling. It's, it's a doubting of God's goodness, feeling sorry for yourself, feeding a false narrative, forgetting all that God's done. Thirdly, we see the deliverance of the Lord. In this final section, God brings exactly what they ask for. There are two issues here, aren't there? There's Moses' demand for help and the people's demand for meat. And God graciously says he's going to deal with both. In verses 16 and 17, God promises help for Moses, 70 others to share the burden of the people. In verses 18 to 20, God promises meat. And not just ordinary meat, quail, no less. Have you ever had quail at a fancy restaurant? And, and quail in such large quantities, it'll be coming out of their nostrils, coming out of their ears, we might say, until they can't stand it. And they feel about quail the way that God feels about their grumbling. And God delivers on his promises. He does what he says. We didn't read it, uh, but he follows through. He takes a portion of the spirit on Moses and puts it on these 70 elders so they can share the burden of leadership. And then he provides meat, brings a, a wind that, that carries quail into the camp, kind of airlifts them in, they drop. See, Moses could have just asked God. He could have come to God calmly, trusting, saying, God, feeling overwhelmed, please can you help me with this burden that I feel, but instead he complains, stomping around like an entitled teenager. And yet God graciously provides for his needs. The people are different, however. At least Moses talked to God about his disappointment. The people had rejected God completely. They were daydreaming about going back to Egypt and serving Pharaoh again. And so to teach them, God gives them exactly what they ask for, gives them over to their cravings. So in verse 31, 
As I said, he sends a wind to bring quail, and so much quail that it took thousands of people a whole day and a night and another day to, uh, to gather it all in. But they get even more than they bargained for. Even as they were eating, many of them were told were struck down by a plague. And this is what you see in each of the grumbling episodes in this section of Numbers. Moses intercedes for the people, and God responds with grace and justice. He forgives their sin, provides for their need, but there's also consequences for what they've done wrong. And so this place, we're told in verse 34, was called Kibroth Hatava, literally graves of craving, graves of grumbling, as they buried those who had craved other foods. A fitting memorial to their deadly sin. But we've missed a bit out. We've jumped over the conversation between Moses and God. And it's this significant exchange that actually gives the key to the whole episode. After God promises to provide a month's worth of meat for the whole army of God's people, Moses says in verse 21 and 22, Really? Thousands of people. Are you really going to provide enough meat for a whole month? He says, like, uh, let me find it. Uh, Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? Moses, again, is, is doubting God's ability to provide. And God sums up the whole episode in six words. Verse 23. Is the Lord's arm too short? Is the Lord's arm too short? Literally, is the Lord's arm shortened? Back at the beginning of Exodus, when when the people cry out to God under the oppression of their slavery, God responds by saying he's heard their cries and he will act to deliver them. So in Exodus 6, verse 6, it says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgments. This becomes a repeated phrase throughout the Pentateuch to describe God's rescue of his people. He brought them out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And so here in Numbers 11, God is asking Moses, do you think my arm has been shortened? Do you think my arm has lost its strength? Has God's mighty hand gone limp? Has the Lord who brought his people out of Egypt lost his strength? Or is he still able to look after his people and deliver on his promises? Well, of course he is. The God who turned rivers to blood, the God who brought locusts and gnats and frogs into the land of Egypt, the Lord who brought darkness on the land, the Lord who brought the world's greatest superpower to its knees, the God who rescued his people from judgment and slavery, who made a way through the Red Sea, this God is not going to have any trouble at all feeding his newly liberated people. If the great deliverance was possible, 
How much more can you trust him for the small things? Can you see what God is saying? Look back to the past. Remember what I've done. Remember who I am. And let that give you confidence for the presence. I've done the harder thing. I've brought you up out of Egypt. You can trust me for the smaller thing to provide for your needs along the way. And so can you see for us, the antidote to our grumbling, our doubting of God's goodness, his ability to provide, is the same, to look to the past, to remember what God has done, to remember who God is. But the great act of rescue that we look back to is not the exodus from Egypt, but of course the cross. Romans 8 verse 32 says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Do you see what Paul is saying? God has done the harder thing, so we can trust him for the smaller things. If he gave up his son, well surely he'll give us everything else that we need until the day we reach the promised land of the new creation. God did not spare his own son. God doesn't have anything more precious than his son, his only son. God's love for his son is beyond our comprehension. And yet we're told God did not spare his own beloved son, but gave him up for us. What more could we possibly ask of God to to prove his love for us, his favor, his goodness towards us. God came through for us when it mattered most. He's rescued us from our sin, from the judgment we deserve. He's brought us to himself. He's adopted us as his children. He was willing to give his son for us. He's done the hardest thing of all. So we can trust him for the smaller things. He was faithful in that. So we can trust him in this. Whatever this is, whatever hardship and trial we might be facing, in which we're tempted to doubt God's goodness, in which we're prone to forget what God has done. He was faithful in that. I can trust him in this. Now, the all things that Paul talks about here is not literally everything. This isn't a blank check to fulfill every selfish desire that you have. I think it's best to understand it as everything that we need for our journey through life to the new creation. And so that won't mean an absence of hardship, but it will mean strength to endure. It will mean at least the things that Paul talks about in the surrounding verses in Romans 8. No condemnation for the sins of the past. A future glory beyond compare with the sufferings we face in this life. And an assurance that God is working in every circumstance for our good fulfilling his promise to make us like Jesus. You know, those three things, if we could just hold on to those three things, that would cure us of any grumbling, wouldn't it? That that our past is forgiven, that our future is secure and glorious, 
that our, our present is filled with promise and purpose. Or remember the five things we've talked about before. God the Father loves me. Jesus died for me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. God's working in all things for my good. I'm on my way to glory. Just picture yourself in a circumstance where you're facing some test, some trial, some hardship, and you're tempted to complain. Bring to mind these things. My past's forgiven. My future's secure. My present is filled with promise and purpose. God the Father loves me. Jesus died for me. The Spirit lives in me. God's working in everything for my good. I'm on my way to glory. Do what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Take yourself in hand. Preach to yourself the good news of the gospel. And put grumbling to death. I'm keen to give us some time to discuss and pray together maybe. So some questions on the screen for you to reflect on yourself or talk to the people around you. You can read them yourself. I'll give you five minutes and then come back and lead us in prayer. Sure, you could talk more. Please do up to the service. But let me lead us in prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this story and um, see the truth of what Paul said that that these things were written as examples to us, warnings to us. We know our own tendencies to complaints and grumbling, and we pray that you would uh, help us to to overcome, to resist. Uh, to look to you at the point of temptation when we're tempted to give in to self-pity and start believing a uh, false narrative and just complain about uh, the hardships that we're facing. Uh, we pray that you would uh, come and bring to mind the truths of the gospel, that you would remind us and assure us of your, your goodness and your favor uh, towards us. Uh, we thank you for the truth of that verse, that you who did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all, how would you not graciously give us all things? Help us to believe at the core of our being that you will provide everything we need as we journey through this life to the promised land. Please make us a community that's uh, characterized by gratitude and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.